Well, I, I appreciate Dave's heroic introduction, but it's not as heroic as it might sound. I had this sermon already prepared. I was going to preach it next week, so just moved it a week up. Um, this is a sermon that I have preached once before. It was about a month ago at Redeemer Presbyterian. For those of you who are relatively new, you might not know that about 10 years ago we started a church up in Elk Grove, and so um, I help out. I continue that. We, our family spent two or three years up there starting that church. We'd, we'd moved to, to Oakdale in order to be close to our church here in Ceres, and then shortly after that we started a church in Elk Grove, so we traded a, an hour-long commute for an hour and 15-long commute. Um, life is not about our convenience, is it? But um, so I'm still serving up there and uh, had the opportunity to preach. And so I asked, I asked George, what, what, I can preach on anything. I'm not going through a sermon. What would bless your people? And he said, well, most people don't know you or your story, or the story of your family. So why don't you weave that into something? And so that's what I did. And as I was doing so, I realized that some of you who we've known a while now, actually, you don't know a lot of our story. Uh, And you don't, even though our home is very open, a lot of you haven't been, spent much time in it, so though there's no secrets, you don't know kind of how we operate. And so one of the things that I hope to do is to, to share with you what God has shown us and has been showing us as a family over the past 16 years. I recognize that some of the topics that we'll cover are tender to many people here. We're going to be talking about suffering, particularly suffering in the body, and that's hard. Um, I believe that what you will hear is from God's word, and so it will be true, but even when the light is good, when it shines on you, it can be hard to bear at first. And so I just encourage you, um, receive Um, whatever truth God gives to you from his word um, with joy, even if it hurts your eyes a bit at first. My my desire is not pain for you, but joy and hope. Um, So let's pray. Father, we are weak and we are frail and helpless in the storm. So I ask, since you've given me the privilege of speaking from the pulpit with authority, that the words of my mouth, Father, and the meditation of my heart, might it be acceptable in your sight, our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to imagine for a moment, um, it's not a, we're not going to fantasy land here. I want you to imagine an elevator, and you're standing in the elevator, and you're alone, and it's going to be about 75 stories that you're going to have to go up, and so it's going to be a while that you're going to be on this elevator. And then somebody walks in, and the elevator is, you know, about 10 feet wide, and the person, instead of kind of splitting the distance, you know, you move over to one of the corners, and they're supposed to go over to the kind of the other corner, right? But they don't. They walk right over next to you, and they stand right next to you you'd be thinking something's wrong here, right? This person has violated my personal space. Some of you, uh, maybe some of you are this, but many of you have experienced what people oftentimes call close talkers, you know? There's kind of this acceptable space you, you give somebody when you're talking, and if they, it can be inches. They move in a couple inches, and you're like, what is, can you just, and then you move back and they follow you. It's like this game of tag that nobody wants to play. And then there's the, there's, the odd, there's the odd phenomenon 
where a woman gets pregnant and suddenly, you know, what would normally be unacceptable, you can just go up and you can just touch her stomach. Normally, that's a no-no. You don't, you need permission. Like, normally, we naturally, understandably, we're supposed to give you permission before you touch us, right? We can all understand that. But God, God does not follow our rules. He often, he inevitably violates our personal space and touches us without our permission. Our bodies are not off limits to his touch. When I was 19, I was introduced to Reformed theology, and I began to fill my head with truths, um, beautiful, good truths. In fact, Ron and Laura were there way back in the day um, as this was taking place. And... uh, Many of, the, many of the truths were things like this. The sovereign grace of God. The deep efficacy of Christ's atonement. The beauty, the consistency, the trustworthiness of God's revealed word. God's spoken word in creation. He speaks and continues to uphold the trees and the birds and the celestial beings. Celestial bodies. The goodness, the goodness of the material world, the goodness of our bodies, the expectation that we have for the growth and success of his kingdom, the nations will be discipled, and the glorious hope of the resurrection. These were all things that began to fill my brain, my mind, um, starting when I was 19 and over the following years. And the one truth that I really fought hardest against, however, was the, the the idea of God's complete sovereignty. I thought it would violate my freedom if I gave that up. If I, if I said God is completely sovereign, I have to give up my freedom. I didn't realize that God's sovereignty is the very ground of our freedom. You can't have it unless God is completely sovereign. So during those months, I was, conf- I was confronted with and came to be comforted by such passages as these. Listen and be comforted. Or these, these are truths that I, I was um, encouraged by. God causes, this is having to do with God's sovereignty. God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. The horse is made ready for battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. Hear God's sovereignty in these passages. The heart of the king, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he moves it like a river wherever he wants it to go. The lot, like dice, they're cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Hear this? Ironically, this was, this was in here a month ago, Werners, so this is not planned. It's not for you. I'm not preaching at you. This is from Acts chapter 2. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan. Talking about Jesus. Jesus was handed over by God's deliberate plan. And his foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep any hold on him. Here's another passage. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Listen to this. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, that's a heavy burden. But then listen to this. For it is God who works in you. You hear that? God's sovereignty and our 
These were things that I was having to be, I was being confronted by, having to grapple with and come to understand. For it, is God, um, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And of course, eventually I stopped wiggling under the uncomfortable clarity of Romans chapter 9. And if you don't know what that is, take a, take a peek at it, uh, look at it, grapple with it yourself. And so I was finally settled. I finally settled into the fact that I was now a happy Calvinist. I was all around 1920, 19 and 20 years of age, not 1920. I am a grandpa now, but I'm not that old. So I now knew in my head, and I think it was beginning to sink down into my heart, that God was sovereign. And I also knew that God was good. And I also knew that the best expression of this this reality that God is sovereign and powerful, but also very, very good, was in the, in the, the picture of his fatherhood, the reality of his fatherhood. I knew in my head that even the painful discipline of God was better. Okay, God's, even his painful discipline was better than man's mere attempt at love. I knew this in my head. And in the kind providence of God, a couple of years after this kind of process of being working through these theological issues, I ended up getting married to Karen. And seven years later, the first seven years were truly glorious. I, I remember after the first year, she, she said, isn't it supposed to be difficult? Now, a lot of times it is. Eight years. Um, okay, she's correcting me. Yes. She's my helpmate. Okay, so eight years later. Uh, I have to change my notes. Uh, yeah, so eight years later, glorious first eight years, we're in the car, driving on the freeway. I'm cogitating up in my little brain and thinking about things. And I turned to her and I said, you know, it's really interesting, babe. Think about this for a second. I hope, hopefully it was interesting. I said, so many people will stand and worship just like we've been doing here today. And they'll raise their hands and they'll talk about the goodness of God. And I love God. And God is so good. All around them, you exit the doors, and there are people who are suffering. There's poverty. There's wars. There's people dying. There's people being maimed. There's disease. But they'll raise their hands and talk about how good God is until it touches them. And then the only thing they have raised is a fist. It shifts that fast. So I said this to her. I said, isn't that interesting? Well, I don't think it was more than a week I'm, I walk in the door, and Karen's unconscious on the floor. We rush her to the ER. Long story short, three days later, she's recovering from brain surgery. She's diagnosed with three months left to live. She has brain cancer. God was clearly asking, what do you really believe? I knew, I knew this was a fallen world. I knew that, that death is the wages of sin. I knew that. I knew that death would take both my wife and me someday. I'd seen enough to know that we grow old and we break and we often languish. I'd seen death take some far too young. I'd vowed for better or for worse. I'd imagined a bit what worse might look like and believed myself to be ready for that leap. I thought, oh, well, with Karen, 
even the worst would be glorious, you know, in that romantic way that we, we think in the beginning. But pain and disappointments like this had never touched either of us. We'd never spent a day in the hospital except for births. Like, um, like the strutting private in the military whose speech is all about bravery in battle, it isn't until the bullets are whizzing by your head, the bombs are dropping, the bodies of men who were laughing with you just hours before lay lifeless and broken next to you. It's not until those moments that you find out what you really believe, what really is important to you, what really is in your heart. When your sergeant tells you to stand up and run toward the men with the guns, will you do it? So what do you really believe, really? The intervening, I'm going to say, 16 years, we'll go with that. They've been progressively harder and harder. Karen had an initial brain surgery, and the radiation, everything went really well. Um, but most of her endocrine system was shot, so no more kids, no thyroid, no more babies. Five years later, a broken neck. Four years ago, another cancer diagnosis, another brain surgery, another round of radiation. I often describe her situation like a, like a piece of beautiful, crisp white paper that gets crumpled up and then spread out, and then crumpled up and then spread out, and then crumpled up and then spread out. How's she doing? Well, she's spread out. But you can't put it back. Not long ago, this is probably six weeks or so, I was walking up the stairs. She said she listened to my sermon in RPC, so I, I think she knows this already, but was Karen was walking up the stairs. It had been a long, it had been a hard day for Karen. She slowly kind of teetered her way methodically up the stairs, and I was standing behind her in, to catch her. case she tipped backwards. I was sad. In my heart, I wondered, God, Lord, how long will we have to watch this beautiful woman just disintegrate? That's the moment of decision. That thought reflected reality. It reflected our real situation. It reflected the reality of my heart in that moment. But when those kinds of words slip from your mouth or just the mouth of your mind, what happens next will make all the difference and will reveal what you really believe. What is going to follow that lament? Do I allow the heaviness of our situation? Do you allow the heaviness of your situation, the sadness of your heart, as real as it is, to take the steering wheel and the thoughts of your, the steering wheel of your thoughts and of your emotions and to drive them over that cliff into despair, into self-pity, into unbelief? That's where we normally want to go. Because we are dominated by a fleshly love of self 
Self-pity is natural. It feels so cathartic. We can grow too easily to like the words that it speaks into our heart. It strokes our ego. Self-pity strokes our ego as it tells us how sad things are, how we've been victimized by that person, victimized by that loss or that hurt, victimized by that situation. Our self-pity acts like a lever to elevate us up above those who brought us the hurt or calamity. And when the only person to blame ultimately is God, our self-pity raises, up, up, raises us up above him too, making him, the God of the universe, a debtor to our pain. At least in our minds. To blame God is a natural response because in our hearts we know, even the pagans know that God is sovereign. Consider that Job and his friends, they never questioned God's sovereignty. That was not the question in Job. They knew Job's pain was ultimately brought about by God. Go back and read the story. That was not the question. Would Job respond by blaming God and cursing him like an enemy? That was the question. Pagans understand. Unbelievers understand in their hearts that God rules. They know him as king. They suppress that truth, but they know it in their hearts. They sense the judging lo- judgment looming, and so they grope for anything that will hide their faces from his, this truth. They grope for any remedy to prolong death and the judgment that waits on the other side. They know God is sovereign judge, but they don't know him as sovereign father. That's the problem. And yet we do. We know him as father. Well, we say we do. We pray it in, the, in that paradigmatic prayer our Father who art in heaven. And we hear it in our passage today, which is from Matthew chapter 6. So if you have a, a, pas- a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 6. It's, that, it's, a, very, it's a very common passage. You, you'll know it. It's the one about anxiety. But this really isn't a passage. This is not a sermon so much about anxiety. But Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 25, and we'll read through verse 34. These are God's words. Listen to them. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. That's the, the core of what we're getting at today. What you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet, hear these words, Christian, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? You silly, silly child. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how how they grow. They don't toil They don't spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these little flowers. So if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? This is not, it is a rebuke. It's more like an admonition. But it's the admonition that you should hear like a loving father or friend saying, stop your worrying. You don't need to worry. 
you silly, silly person. Look around you. There's evidence of God's care all around. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, and you are not Gentiles. You are, you belong to God's people. The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father, there it is again, knows that you need them all. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things they'll be, they'll be taken care of. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious enough for itself, and we've all been there. Sufficient is the day. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So what is the comfort in this passage? Why ought we not to worry? Well, God is sovereign. To be in heaven here in this context is not to emphasize his distance or transcendence, but rather his power. He is unaffected by the constant flux of history. He resides on the throne as king above all kings. He is not affected by the changing world that daily breaks over us. He stands on the shores of heaven and can reach out to us as we are sinking Precisely because he does not reside in the midst of these tumultuous waves. He is in heaven. Not distant, but not affected like we are. So where's the comfort? Well, he's he's sovereign. Where's the comfort? Number two, God in heaven is our loving father. Our father cares. He knows. He hears. He sees. And he acts on our behalf. He intervenes. He provides. He nourishes. He warms. He picks us up. And he embraces us like any good father. So he's sovereign. He's our father. And our God in heaven values us far more than those things that he so clearly values. He values lilies and he values birds. But his care is not simply an obligation. Oh, I have a, I have a, it's a chore. I've got to care for Karen today or Ted or Micah. No, this isn't a contractual requirement. He approaches his children the same way he approaches his one and only begotten son. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He speaks those words over, to, over all of his children because we, be, we are children by adoption through Jesus. He sees us the same way. You are valued highly. Well, consider, flip over a couple more pages to Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, and consider a similar passage when Jesus spoke to his disciples about fear, particularly fear over persecution. Chapter 10, verse 29 and 30. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Okay, so relatively speaking, they are not worth very much. And yet, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Ah, Isn't that heartwarming? Doesn't that just make you feel all warm and fuzzy inside? God cares about small birds, and he cares about your baldness. Ah. 
God knows us intimately and is governing it, governing it all. The conclusion is don't be afraid. And this is encouraging. But we, we might, you probably read this and you missed something really, really important. You may, without thinking, come away with the impression that the answer to all this worry is that nothing bad or difficult will ever happen to us. And yet, like, that's not my experience. How do I reconcile these two? Well, that's not what it said. It doesn't say, do not worry because I will protect you from every hardship. Consider for a moment what you may never have before drawn from this passage. Let me ask you this question. According to this passage, who is it that gives permission for sparrows to fall and heads to go bald? He didn't say the sparrows will never fall to the ground and you'll never go bald. He simply says they're not going to fall to the ground apart from my will and I have every hair numbered. God clothes and he unclothes the lilies. God has numbered the hairs on your head because he placed them there. He keeps them there and he pulls them out. The same declaration of sovereignty that in this passage is designed to bring us comfort and that's why it's there. Not one hair will fall from your head. Not one sparrow from the sky apart from the will of God means that it is the will of God at times that men go bald and birds die. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Will God provide for your physical health? Yes and no. Will God's touch on your body be always health and strength and freedom from pain and debilitation? Sometimes yes. Sometimes no. Eventually, assuredly, no. God will, if he hasn't already done so, shove in. He will violate your your personal space. He'll touch your body or your mind. He'll do it without your permission. He is, after all, God. We belong to him. The wages of sin is death. We will all grow old. We will all die. Or we'll die without growing old. That happens too, tragically. And when the touch finally comes... When it finally happens to you, like it did that faithful day to the Greg 16 years ago, how will you respond? How are you responding? How in the world are we to understand all this? How are we to live with it? This reality of God's sovereignty over skies full of birds and heads full of hair on the one hand and the ground full of birds and churches full of bald men on the other, how do we make sense of that? Well, there's three things that I think about all the time from God's word that help me, and I hope they will help you. The three things are these. God's character. We've already talked somewhat about that. The cross and the resurrection. God's character, the cross, and the resurrection. Consider again just a few passages that deal with the character of God. What are we told about God's attitude Toward our suffering. God is not indifferent. Psalm 116.15 says this. Precious. Think about that word. Precious. We think about a baby. Oh, so precious. Precious in the sight. in, In the sight of God is the death of all of his saints. Precious in the sight of God 
is the death of all of his saints. He does not look on with callousness at the death and the dying of his people. He calls you precious. Precious in the sense that you're special, you're noticed. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are just dust. We see this compassion expressed in the weeping of Jesus over the death of his friend Lazarus, a death he knew would be made right shortly, but that had nonetheless brought pain to those whom he loved, and so it brought tears to his eyes. Do you, do you see, can you picture, do you hear the character of God? Well, number two, I, th- I think about the character, of, uh, the character of God, number one. Number two, I think about the cross. We can point to this moment of divine lament in the life of Jesus of Nazareth because Jesus took on flesh like you have. He took on humanity, your humanity. He took on our situation. And it was not a station of dignity. He was born into a no-account little village in Israel and grew up in a real town. I think of the town that he grew up in as Barstow, the Barstow of, of ancient Israel. Nathaniel, when he heard that this guy was from Nazareth, he says, is there any, anything good come from Nazareth? Is there anything good that comes from Barstow? Sorry if you're from Barstow. Um, but it is precisely this incarnate reality that provides the necess- necessary context for the gospel story to come to its climax in the cross and the resurrection. It's through the filter of this gospel story that we can properly understand our pain. Are you in pain Are you suffering physically, emotionally, spiritually? You need to look at the cross again. If you miss the cross, you will never be able to make sense of your pain. The heart of the gospel is the death of the incarnate Son of God on a cross, a real broken body and real shed blood. God the Father sent God the Son, his beloved Son, to die and to suffer. He knows the indignities. He knows the pains, the loss endemic to our experience. God clothed Jesus with a perishable and corruptible body. And then he unclothed him. But then he clothed him again with the same body, but gloriously refashioned, now incorruptible and undefiled. And I know, in some sense, you know all of this. But I tell you this because I also know that we forget, especially when things get painful or hard, I forget. That's why I have to constantly remind myself. In the midst of our pain, we forget that we only need to wait three days and the tragedy becomes the great cosmic comedy. We forget that God sits in the heavens and what does he do there? He laughs. He laughs at his enemies. He laughs at death. And that brings us to the third and final point. I think about this all the time. It has become so real. The resurrection. Because of the resurrection, you can laugh, even ahead of your own death. 
Because we know what is coming. We know that though we will die, we will not stay dead. Though our bodies will break, we will be laid in the ground. And we will reach, given enough time, a complete disintegration. There is a day just around the corner, relatively speaking, three days, when there will be a trumpet blast, a shout, and our bodies, the ones you're sitting here in these uncomfortable chairs in, will rise glorious and incorruptible. Author Andy Wilson, he calls graveyards resurrection gardens. Think about that for a second. Graveyards. Every time you see a graveyard, a cemetery, now think, oh, that's a resurrection garden. What do you do in gardens? You plant seeds. And then what grows out of them? Plants. What do you do in cemeteries? You plant seeds. And then what grows out of them? Resurrected bodies. Here's just some of the many passages that, that, that glory in the promise of our bodily resurrection. Hear these. For since we believe, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. There is a certainty of this. If you've died with Jesus, you will raise with Jesus. Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, if the spirit of Jesus dwells in you, the same spirit that raised him from the dead, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. To believe in the story of Jesus is to believe in the certainty of our own resurrection even as we believe in the certainty of his. We are united with him. Where he goes, we go. To the grave and then to the skies. And then back down here. Romans 6, 5. If we have been united with him in his death, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We will rise with a body like his. Death does not have the power to prevent this. Paul says so in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a little bit longer passage. It's 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 25. He's dealing with the issue of, is the resurrection going to happen? Is it a bodily resurrection? Has it already happened? And toward the end of this conversation with the Corinthian Christians, he says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, Paul says. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Sowing is not this, children. It's not with a needle and a thread. He's not talking about that. He's talking about taking a seed and putting it into the ground What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. We are not going to be raised with bodies like oak trees or wheat. It's a separate kind of body, appropriate to the seed that's planted. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earth, earthly is another. There is one glory for the sun, another glory for the moon, another glory for the stars, for stars differ from stars in glory. The implication here is your, your bodily resurrection will be different than that, but glorious. 
So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. Think about your bodies. Some of us don't have to think very long. So imperishable. Mm -hmm. Children, it will happen to you. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown is dishonor. What is, I'm sorry, what it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. We are weak and frail, helpless in the storm. But what is sown in weakness is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body, he says. We make a mistake here, by the way, if we think, oh, so spiritual means non-material. No, just a few chapters before this, Paul's talking about other spiritual things. He says, oh yeah, there was a rock that you drank from, a spiritual rock. Was it a real rock? Did he hit it with his staff? Yes, but he calls it a spiritual rock. He says, oh yeah, and you had spiritual food that you ate. Was it material food? Yes, but it was spiritual food. So don't be very careful when you hear that kind of language not to import um, like Gnostic, um, over-spiritualized um, concepts into that. No, the body that we'll raise is a spiritual body, but it's a body that in some sense can be touched, that will eat, just like Jesus. Are you feeling awfully attached to that body of yours? You should. It was given to you as a part of you, and it will be yours forever. Your eternal state will not be disembodied and in heaven. The consummation of Christ's cross work is the resurrection of your body from wherever it was laid and wherever it has been spread over time. And then heaven and earth come together. You'll lament the pain, the weakness, the disorders, the sagginess. That's understandable. Stop your worrying. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. We have a resurrection to look forward to. Sunday is on the way. Death will not have the last word, even over these bodies of flesh. This life is hard, and the pain, the indignities, the loss that we experience in these tents of flesh are real, and they're overwhelming. How can we experience the deprivations of our bodies in hope? We just go back to the first principles. What do you know about God? And if you don't know him, come to know him. For those of you who have begun that journey of knowing God, what do you know about him? We've just learned some things today, or relearned them. God is a God of compassion who did, not, who did what it took to rescue not only your soul, but that body of yours too. He did everything it took. We remember what the gospel teaches us. All good and perfect gifts come down from the Father of lights, and Jesus, the greatest gift of all, paid for the resurrection of our bodies from the dead. That is the culmination of his cross work. It's not done yet. It was finished in principle. It's not yet consummated. It's consummated when death dies in our resurrection. We believe that we no longer need to fear death or even 
the process that gets us there. Yes, the God who cares for lilies and sparrows and the tops of your head is also the one who brings all these things low in their time, but he will bring us down to the earth one day, and that process is hard, but it's all mercies. These are all mercies. Unless the seed dies, it will not grow. It's all grace. It was grace in the garden. It will be grace in eternity. And it is grace even now as we watch our bodies groan and list like an overburdened ship in a storm. The promise we hear in Matthew 6 is not the promise, I will protect you from every hardship, but it is the promise that whatever injury, whatever disease, whatever disorder we experience is from the hand of a loving Father for our good. And those diseases will not have the final say over our bodies. We have the hope of the resurrection of the dead. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be. It's just a kernel. Do you want to remain a kernel? Picture the little popcorn kernel you drop into the the pot. Mmm, delicious. Give me another one of those kernels. No, you want it to pop. It needs to die first. Release your grip on the perishable, dishonored, weak, and natural body that you have now. Ready yourself and your body for the grave, knowing that you will receive it back imperishable, glorified, powerful, spiritual. Don't resist God's violation of your personal space. It's not yours anyway. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, and this is where we will end. One more sentence. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has even imagined what God has for those who who love him. Let's pray. Father, these these things are impossible to believe unless you give us the ability to do so. And so we ask for your miraculous work in our hearts. I pray for those who are suffering that you would bring them comfort. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what you are doing. And we thank you for what you will do. We thank you. And we look forward to eating with you now. Because of what Jesus has done for us. We pray it in his name. Amen.